0: over the years uh, in our nation, some of which have stayed in our memories, even up to today. For example, if I were to ask you, who was it who said, Give me liberty or give me death? Who was that? Patrick Henry, 1775, at the Virginia Convention, to motivate them to make a resolution against the British. And do you remember who said, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country? John F. Kennedy, that's right. That came from his inaugural address in 1961. Uh, who was it that said that the December 7, 1941 would be a date that would live in infamy? FDR mentioned that, said that in his speech to a joint session of Congress. Within an hour, we were engaged in World War II. How about Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Yes, my hero, Ronald Reagan. I still get chills when I hear that. I remember seeing it live, but he was standing in front of the Berlin Wall calling the leader of the Soviet Union to, to break communism, the grip of communism in East Berlin. All right, so you guys are pretty good at this. Let me give you a little tougher one. In a speech delivered on July 4th, Independence Day, 1852, this man said, This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. Somebody got, who said that? Frederick Douglass. Very good. That's right. He gave this speech. uh, He was invited to a celebration of Independence Day in New York. And in his speech, he decried the injustice and hypocrisy that was going on in the nation. While they were celebrating America's freedom, there were still many in chains. Uh, Just over 100 years later, another civil rights leader in his speech repeated this refrain, I have a dream. Who was that? Martin Luther King, Jr., 1963. He was standing in front of a memorial of a man who delivered perhaps the most well-known speech in American history. began with the words, four score, and seven years ago, Abe Lincoln. That's right, Abraham Lincoln. Indeed, these are among the most famous speeches delivered on American soil. Well, except for Reagan's. He was in Berlin, but he was an American. But these speeches are remembered not only for the way they were delivered, but also for the impact that they had among those who heard them and even uh, up to generations following those speeches. But with the many famous speeches that there are, uh, and I, I looked up various lists of the most famous speeches, there's one speech, one message that you won't find on any list, even though it is probably the most impactful message or speech delivered in this country, because it changed the eternal destiny of many. It was delivered about 275 years ago in this very month of June in a little church in Enfield, Connecticut. It was given by a visiting preacher from the nearby town of Northampton. And the impact of his sermon on that church was so profound. There were people weeping in the aisles. Many stayed in their pew and didn't leave after he was done. Many made commitments to follow Christ. Others made deeper, stronger commitments to have a passion to live for Him. This sermon helped to fuel a massive revival in the mid-1700s called the Great Awakening. What kind of message brought such a response? Who gave it? And what topic did He deliver it on? What passage did it come from? Interestingly enough, it came from a small, obscure phrase in the book of Deuteronomy, The phrase was, their foot shall slide in due time. speaker was Jonathan Edwards. The sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that sermon has, I believe, become the most quoted, referenced sermon in history outside of the Bible. It was a profound impact. And I imagine, I was thinking about this, what if I put that title on the marquee out front? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do you think that would bring folks in? I mean, what was Edwards thinking about, right? What a title. Gee, that's going to be an encouraging message. But actually, this sermon has been used by many English lit profs or history profs who wanted to portray the Puritans as this harshful, harsh, narrow, judgmental, angry people. But you know, if you read this whole message and read it carefully... You'll notice that he did not deliver it as a cold and and judgmental Pharisee. Jonathan Edwards delivered it as a man who was pleading with people to listen and be rescued. And to help them understand the dire situation that they were in, he used these vivid and poetic pictures, these images that he described very powerfully. For example, at one point he said, The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Later, he said, you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. It's powerful. Edwards used this direct and graphic imagery all throughout his message to help his hearers understand the seriousness of the wrath of God. It's the same kind of powerful, vivid, and emotional imagery and poetry that our prophet Nahum used as he opened his message, an oracle of judgment against the Assyrians for well over a hundred years, these Assyrians had abused and oppressed and committed these wicked acts of cruelty, not only upon Judah, but upon many nations around them. Jonah's revival in Nineveh had long since dissipated, and God had now was now calling through the prophet Nahum, was calling them to give account. I mentioned last week the many horrible things that they had committed, and God's judgment of the Assyrians was motivated by his hatred for sin. Nahum depicted this hatred vividly in the opening words of his prophecy as he said, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. These words from Nahum present a picture about God that we don't often hear about today. For with all the emphasis on the love and and the mercy and the compassion and the goodness of God, this whole idea of his anger, his intense hatred of evil... His wrath against the wicked, well, those attributes don't get a lot of press. It's not very popular. And yet, as I mentioned last week, Leon Morris did a study. There are more passages in the Bible on God's wrath than there are related to his love. And that's not to say one's more important than the other. That's not the point of that. But it's to tell us that both are significant That his wrath is not an insignificant attribute. But sadly, I think today it's been relegated to those so-called unsophisticated and, and harsh preachers of yesteryear. Preachers like Jonathan Edwards. Today we've evolved. We have a better understanding of who God is. This idea of a wrathful God sending people to hell is just, it's so Neanderthal. In his popular but dangerous book, Love Wins, Rob Bell dismissed the notion that hell is a real place where the wicked are eternally condemned in flames. His book was a New York Times bestseller, by the way. Rather, he says that hell is a metaphor, that it's a a metaphor, a a symbol, an image of the bad things that happen to us in life. He then dismissed all that Jesus had said about hell, saying that Jesus was simply referring to a garbage dump, not an eternal, everlasting inferno. And he even attacked the the heart of the gospel itself by declaring that God would never devise such a punishment, such a judgment. That's beneath him. He said that eventually everyone will be won over by God's love. Hence, love wins. No matter what you've done, no matter what you believe, no matter whether you acknowledge God or not or believe in him or not, No matter if you've served him, you will eventually make it to heaven, was his point. No wonder it's a bestseller. Misguided theologian Clark Pinnock was even more pointed in his opinion when he said this, How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness, whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely, a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by ordinary moral standards, by the gospel itself. That is a serious accusation. If you believe in a God who made hell, that's more like Satan. Is he right? Is Rob Bell right? Has the wrath of God been something that has been misunderstood over the many centuries? Is God's love the supreme attribute that, that supersedes every other attribute of God, and especially his wrath? Is hell really a metaphor? Is there a hell? If there is, what is it? Is it a place of eternal torment? If so, how does that fit in with love's, God's love and mercy? If 2 Peter 3.9 says that God does not wish for any to perish, then why is there a hell? Well, the only way to answer these questions is to look what God has said, right? This is the only place that we have an infallible, inerrant, inspired instruction of what is true. And so it is to his word that he must look. Our particular focus this morning is going to be, we're going to talk more about the wrath of God, particularly God's final wrath. This message is going to be more topical in natures, we're going to be looking at several texts on this difficult doctrine, and we'll focus on four characteristics this morning of the wrath of God, and the first one comes from Romans 1, so if you could please turn there, Romans chapter 1. We will see here, firstly, that God's wrath is against sin. Paul makes very clear from the beginning of his letter, that his message is about the gospel. In fact, he says in the very beginning that he is called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In verse 11, he declares how he was eager and excited to come and see them. Verse 15, we see the reason for that eagerness, as he says there in Romans 1.15. "'So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel.'" For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul expresses here how he has profoundly been shaped and affected and impacted by the gospel and, and he was eager to tell the Romans about it comes right out of the gate in Romans 1, verse, first five verses, talking about the gospel of Christ and, and again, how excited he was to come and, and preach it to them, to talk to them about it, to explain it, to, to delve into its depth and its riches. But he realized that he, at that time, was not able to do it in person, and so he wrote a letter to them about it. So this whole letter is written about the gospel and its implications So right away in verse 18, look what he says after this. Right after declaring the power of the gospel to save and to justify, Paul then says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Wow, you talk about a wet blanket. It seemed like Paul was gearing up to to really explode with the wonders and the grace and the beauty and the blessings of the gospel when he says it is the power of salvation to all who believe. And the first thing he says right after that is, God is angry. Then he spends the next two chapters talking about that. Here we see that Paul is showing that in presenting the gospel, the, the wonderful, the good news of God's salvation and grace and kindness in his son, the first issue that we face in the gospel is a problem, a big problem. Things are not good. We are in trouble. Why are we in trouble? Paul says here, the wrath of God, his anger is revealed from heaven. And why is he angry? What does Paul say? What does he say there? It's revealed from heaven against what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul's saying here, you see, the problem is with us. The problem is with us. His wrath is directed towards us because of our sin. God hates sin. He hates the fact that though it is obvious that he made us, he shows us through his creation, he even planted that understanding within our own hearts and that we take that reality and we suppress it so that we can do what we want, so that we can rebel. That stirs God's anger. We don't want to acknowledge him, Paul says later in verses. We don't want to show him honor. We don't want to thank him. And we certainly don't want to worship him. And so Paul says we, we prevent, we restrain, we suppress the truth about God and the implications of that truth so that we can rebel. And Romans 3 makes it abundantly clear that all of us have taken that path, that there is none righteous, right? Not even one. All have sinned, turned away from the glory of God. Bible says we're all natural-born rebels. We all sin against God, and we sin against each other. And the perfectly holy and good and just God who made us hates that. He hates it, and he hates it a lot. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation and fury every day Proverbs 6.16, there are six things that which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Proverbs, or Psalms 11.5 says, the one who loves violence, God's soul hates. Or as we just read in Nahum 1, verse 2, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. And there are hundreds of more verses all throughout the scripture that speak of God's wrath against sinners. And as we talked about last week, this is not something we should be ashamed of. This attribute is not something that we should try to hide or ignore, just not talk about. As I mentioned last week, that's not the one we, you know, yeah, God has a few blemishes, but we'll just look that one over. We won't talk about it. And as we talked about last week, it is good that sin angers God, isn't it? It is a good thing that he hates it with a passion because sin is bad. Sin is destructive. Sin harms, it hurts, it defiles, it breaks apart, it destroys. Sin murders, corrupts, it corrodes, it brings war, it destroys families, it divides, it abuses, sin kills. And so it is good that God hates it. And it is good that he will deal with it. He's going to deal with all the wicked, evil deeds, not only of the Assyrians, but of all who've committed them against him and not turned to Christ. Nahum wrote his message to the people of Judah as a comfort to them, that indeed God would deal with those who had afflicted such horrible things upon them and many others. And it wasn't long before God carried out that prophecy, that statement that he made. The Assyrians were defeated Not long after that by the Babylonians and Medes, they were completely wiped out. Nineveh was um, totally destroyed. No one found it for hundreds of years. Till the 1800s, someone actually discovered it, what was left of it anyway. And God has also displayed his wrath against sin many times in history, right? What are some other examples of it we see in the Bible? Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin of Achan, I heard the flood, Many other times, even the Assyrians' destruction of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And all of these, though, pale into comparison to the final expression of his wrath upon sinners in a place that we commonly call hell. In our culture, hell is not so much feared anymore. It's more often mocked or joked about, disbelieved, dismissed, even embellished often treated as mythology or a carryover from some enlightened time. And sadly enough, even in the church, it is often ignored. It's ignored in our preaching, in our evangelism. Sin and hell and God's wrath just aren't a popular cell in the modern age, are they? Let's be honest with ourselves for a minute here. Hell is a place we don't want to think about either. I don't want to think about it. Hell is something I would rather ignore, to be honest. Yes, it's a place that God will send those who have rejected Christ. It's necessary because he is holy, but I don't want to think about it too much beyond that. But beloved, think about it, we must. And talk about it, we must. Hell is not a scare tactic to get people on membership rolls in church. That's not the point. It's a real place. It's a real place where real people will go. And they will really experience God's terrible wrath against their sin. And so we have to take time to talk about God's wrath in hell so that we will understand God better. So that we'll be motivated to communicate the gospel More clearly to those who are in danger, so that we will be more grateful to Christ that He's delivered us from hell. So that the songs that we sang this morning would have a deep and profound impact when we take communion together. That's why we need to talk about this. One characteristic of God's final wrath in hell is that it is real, hell is a real place. Many in this world don't think it exists. I've already mentioned a few, and we'd expect that. However, there are many in the church who dismiss its existence. Some, like Rob Bell, say it doesn't exist at all. Others say that hell is temporary. It's a place where a wicked person will go for a time, and then he will cease to exist. That's a view that was first espoused by a man named Amobius in the early 4th century. He said that after dying, the wicked are burned to annihilation. This view, referred to as annihilationism, says that biblical passages which talk about hell, they use words that talk about destruction and and perishing and dying. There's not a sense of, of life going on. Matthew 10, 28, for example, Jesus said, "...fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell." Or 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Or 2 Peter 3.7, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Or even John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not, what? Perish, die, but have eternal life. Or again in John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Or Revelation, hell is referred to four different times as the second death. And so annihilationists say that all of these terms, perish, destroy, death, destruction, these all convey that the wicked cease to exist. When something's destroyed, it's gone. When something dies, it's no longer here, right? In contrast to life in heaven, hell is the extinction of life, they say. To perish is to be destroyed. But is that what those terms really mean? Is that what is being described by Christ and the apostles when they speak of hell? I've written a a paper on this, and I'll post it on the website. I can't go into all of the details, but essentially speaking, these words are not speaking of the event of destruction or death. They are speaking of, of the constant state of being in destruction or death. When Jesus spoke of hell in Mark 9, 48, he called it a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, what is it that a worm and fire do? They consume, right? And what's being consumed in Jesus' words? The person in hell he's speaking of there in Mark 9. And so what does he mean then when he says that the worm doesn't die and the fire doesn't, is never quenched? What does that mean then? That what's being consumed never gets consumed, right? The worm can keep on eating. The fire can keep on burning. It means that these things have a constant source of fuel. So the one in hell exists in a state of being destroyed, but never completely destroyed. You understand the point? We see this in Revelation 19 as well. In fact, please turn there. I want you to see this. Revelation 19 In Revelation 17, verse 8, it says that the beast, the Antichrist, will go to destruction. That same word for destroy that the annihilationists used to say that it means ceasing to exist. But does that mean then the Antichrist will be annihilated? The answer comes in Revelation 19. Which again, this is that glorious chapter of Christ's return and second coming as he attacks and makes war with the enemies of God that have surrounded Jerusalem. And then in verse 19, he says this, And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone." Okay, so what happens to the Antichrist? Revelation 17 said he'd be destroyed, and then he is, in Revelation 19, put where? He's thrown into the lake of fire, the final hell. And they were thrown alive into that lake. Now look at the next chapter, Revelation 20, verse 10. After the millennial reign of Christ, Satan is released from bondage. And we see in Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into where? Lake of fire and brimstone. And just to make sure, John uh, notes that this is the same place the Antichrist went. He says, Where the beast and false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What does it say is going to happen to Satan in the lake of fire? That he's going to be destroyed? They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that isn't just Satan's fate. If you look down to verse 15 in Revelation 20, it says that if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is not destruction, folks. This is a constant condition of being destroyed, of being consumed, but never fully consumed. If you look up at the end of verse 14, John says this is the second death, the lake of fire. And in that, he defines exactly what is meant by death. And in that, he tells us what Jesus meant when he used the word perish in John three sixteen, 16. Whoever believes in him shall never perish. This perishing, this death, this second death is defined as being in the lake of fire forever and ever, of experiencing death, but never dying. Death here does not refer to the fact of existence. It refers to the quality of it. When Jesus spoke of eternal life, Remember, he wasn't just speaking of living forever, right? It's this quality of life. John 17:3, where he said very clearly, he defined eternal life. This is eternal life, to know you, speaking of the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus defined it in terms of relationship, in terms of quality, not just existence. And so by the same token, those in hell are not experiencing that eternal quality of living. They are experiencing an eternal quality of dying. And so perish speaks more of the quality of the state. And so we see in these verses that hell is a real place, the lake of fire where real people and Satan and the Antichrist and his demons will go. It's not a place where they will be annihilated or snuffed out. And you notice in Revelation 20 what it said about the quality of that existence. What kind of ongoing existence will they experience Look again at the end of verse 10 in Revelation 20. They will be what? What? Tormented. Tormented day and night. Hell is not a place where you go hang out with your old buddies. <laughs> it's not a social club or a social event. It isn't a place where you experience some minor problems or irritations. It is a place of what? Torment. Torment. Not only is hell real, but another characteristic of God's final wrath is that it is terrifying. They will be tormented day and night. That word torment is sobering. It carries this idea of torture and pain, suffering, affliction. And what is the source of that affliction? They are in what is described as what? What is the surrounds them? It is the lake of fire, right? Now, some debate if this is literal fire, since hell is also described as a place of darkness and fire gives off light. But whether it is some sort of supernatural fire or whether it is a symbol for something else, it is described in terms so that we understand the point, right? For what does fire do? Greg Rhodes, what does fire do? You know a little bit about this, right? Yeah, and so if you ever had fire touch your body, how would that feel? It would hurt. It hurts. And that's his point. It's not a pleasant experience. Metaphor or not, symbol or not, he's describing a reality of pain and suffering, of agony that we all understand and fear. Probably all of us have been burned at some point or not by hot water or even flames themselves. In addition to the torment of pain like burning, there are other descriptions of hell that tell the horror of it. Jesus described it again as a place where the worm doesn't quit, the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 8, 12, Jesus said it was a place of darkness. That's the picture of abandonment, of banishment. In Matthew 13, 41, in the parable of the tares, he says that it is a furnace of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, we see he describes hell as a furnace of fire. And what are people in that furnace doing? They're wailing, they're crying out, and they're gritting their teeth. They're clenching their teeth. Right? You know, in times past, you've probably seen those old westerns, right, where somebody gets hurt and he goes into the dock and there's no anesthetic, and so the doctor hands him what? Stick, right? Why? Sticking in his mouth, right? So that when he begins surgery, as his teeth clench down, they don't crush each other. They don't grind the teeth apart. They break the stick. We see that this idea presented here. In times past, there was, again, no anesthetic. That is the same as in hell. There's no anesthetic, and there's no stick to bite on. There's no one to console the cries. There is no relief. Jesus talked about that in Luke 16. It was a story about the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that one? And Jesus tells of how they both died, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, this place of paradise, and the rich man goes to Hades. And listen to how Jesus describes the rich man's experience in Luke 16, 23. In Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Again, Jesus used the words torment and agony to convey a picture of great suffering, right? But notice there's even more terrifying about this situation not only is the rich man burning in the furnace he is fully conscious he's speaking here isn't he he's talking he hasn't passed out from the pain there's no passing out in hell there's no shock that your body goes into you don't get used to the agony and this is what's so frightening And maybe perhaps even worse, that in that conscious state, there's no relief. As the rich man cries out, can can you at least have him dip his finger in the water and, and, and put it on my tongue, just a little drop for a second of relief? The answer was no. Not even a tiny drop. Jesus said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some say, well, this account of Lazarus and the rich man, it's just a fictitious story. It's, it's a parable. Since it's not real, it's not giving us a real picture or accurate depiction of hell. But look, even if it is a fictitious story, even if Jesus made it up for a point, Jesus is talking about a guy who, after he dies, goes to a place of judgment, a place where he's being burned up, but not fully being burned up, and as we saw in Revelation 20, what place does that sound like to you? Hell indeed is a real place. Hell is a terrifying place. But there's something that makes it an even greater horror and to see that flip to Revelation 14. Here in chapter 14 of Revelation, there are angels who are declaring, delivering God's final messages to the earth. One angel proclaims an eternal gospel. Giving the people a last chance to repent. A second delivers the fall of Babylon, declares it. And then we read a third in Revelation 14 9. It says, There another angel, a third one, followed them, the first two, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wrath the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Notice here again, we see the, this image describing the the conscious agony they're experiencing. In verse 10, the smoke of their torment goes up. But notice, what do you see right after that? Does the smoke stop rising? If you were to watch long enough, would their smoke disappear or go away? What does it say there? Their smoke goes up forever and ever. Now, where does smoke come from? Lou, I'll ask you this one. I'll put Greg on the spot. Where does smoke come from, Brother Lou? Yeah, say that again. Byproduct of, a byproduct of combustion. Or as we like to say, something burning. <laughs> so if there is smoke that's continuing to come up, that's telling us there is a fire going on. And that fire is a fire that's never going out. The substance is being burned, but never being burned up. And that's the point being made. This conscious agony will never stop. And John emphasizes it here by saying, day and night, forever and ever. It's the same phrase used in Revelation 20, verse 10. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And so we're confronted here with the most horrifying truth of all about hell, about God's final wrath in hell, and that is it'll never end. Now, those who believe in annihilation would say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. That Greek word for eternal, Ion is a word that simply means for a long time. Depends on the context, whether it means forever or not. But usually it just means a long time in the future or an indefinite period of time. Now, technically they're correct. That is the basic fundamental definition of the word. It's a long time, an indefinite period of time relative to the one speaking the word, the context will determine if that time is unending. Let me ask you, what is the context of the book of Revelation when it uses this phrase forever and ever? Well, let's look at a few other examples of it. Revelation 5.13, go back to that for a minute. There's 12 times it's used in the book of Revelation. We'll just look at a few of them. Revelation 5 verse 13 says, "Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them," I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion for an indefinite period of time." No, forever and ever. Skip ahead to Revelation 11:15. Revelation 11:15. Says, then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign for a while. (laughs) Forever and ever. Go back a chapter, Revelation 10, verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven, verse 6, and swore by him who lives for a long time. No, swore by him who lives forever, right? God is eternal forever and ever, who created the earth and the things in it and the earth and the things in it. And these are just a few of the verses. If you look up every reference, all 12 of them in the book of Revelation, in each case forever and ever, means just that. It's not just a long time, it is for all time. He's not just speaking of a finite period, but an infinite period. It is not ending, but eternal. Jesus clarified this. Matthew 25. Skip over there for a minute. I told you to be flipping around here. Matthew 25. This is part of the Olivet Discourse that Jesus delivered on the Mount of Olives. It's the one where he talked about the sheep and the goat judgment and how he had mentioned that, uh, those who had cared for him, cared for the least of these, When were you hungry? When were you naked? When did you need food? This is that passage that he's speaking of that. And Christ said of those who demonstrated that they knew him by showing a love for those in need, those were the sheep, and the goats were those who demonstrated they did not know him because they did not care for his children. And so in verse 40, Jesus says, The king will answer and say to them, these are the sheep, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those in his left, the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal, Ionios, fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice Jesus calls it the eternal fire, using that same word, a root, Ions. What did he mean by that? A long time, an indefinite period of time? Well, look down at verse 46. Jesus concludes with these words, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Same word eternal, same sentence they're used. Whatever he meant for eternal life, he meant for eternal punishment, right? That makes sense? It's normally communication. That's how we do it. We use the word of the same idea in the same sentence. And here, eternal life is for how long? How long is heaven? It is forever, right? God is forever who dwells there. Heaven is forever. And so hell must be forever as well. Jesus says here, hell is an eternal punishment. Again, emphasis on the suffering. The smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. Those in hell will be in a state of conscious torment without end. Thomas Watson said this, Eternity is a sea without bottom and banks. After millions of years, there is not one minute in eternity wasted. And the damned must be ever burning, but never consuming, always dying, but never dead. Oh, eternity, if all the body of earth and sea were turned to sand and all the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand, and a little bird should come every thousand years and fetch away in her bill, but the tenth part of a grain of all that heap of sand... What numberless years would be spent before the vast heap of sand would be fetched away? Get his picture? The whole earth and sky is filled with sand. A little bird every thousand years comes, takes a little piece. How long that would take? He goes on to say, Yet if at the end of all time the sinner might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But that word ever breaks the heart. Smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever. And ever. You know, beloved, seeing the the horrors of hell this week, I don't want to joke about hell anymore. It's not funny. Hell is never funny. Jesus didn't make light of it, the apostles didn't make light of it. We shouldn't either. Hell is frightening to think about. And as much as we would not rather think on such things, as much as we'd rather turn our head away and think about more pleasant things, let's talk about heaven. Let's talk about God's blessing and his glory that we'll experience forever. As much as we would wish there's not such a horrid place as hell, think about it, we must. And look upon it, we must. And believe in it, we must. Let the awful dread of this place Be on your mind right now. Consider carefully the horrors of hell. Reflect on the darkness. Think about the suffering, the agony, the abandonment, the weeping, unending torment. Why am I asking you to do that? Because I'm afraid some of you in this room are going to be there. And I would be cold and heartless and uncaring if I did not say to you with all my conviction and all my passion to cry, flee! Flee from the wrath to come! Run to Christ! Run to Him! Confess your sin! Repent from it! Genuinely! Don't play any church games! Cry out for His mercy! Seek His forgiveness that He delivered and, and gives on the cross! Believe in Him! Bow before Him! Give your allegiance to him. Trust in him. Love him. And I'm not yelling because I'm angry. I haven't raised my voice because I'm mad at you. I'm not trying to be theatrical or draw attention to myself. I'm not trying to threaten you. If I were a fireman who had woken you up from a deep and pleasant sleep by yelling at you to run because your house is on fire, you wouldn't be mad at me. If I were screaming at your child to stop running in the street because there's an oncoming truck about ready to wipe them out, you wouldn't be offended by that. You wouldn't call me harsh or unloving. If I were to scream out at you to move because I saw something that was about to fall on your head and harm you, you wouldn't be insulted by that. You'd be glad. And I raise my voice now because honestly, I'm terrified for some of you. I'm terrified when you open your eyes on the other side of death, you will awaken to flames. And those eyes will never close again. You'll never go back to sleep. You know, I'm afraid that some are going there, here, and you don't even know it. Or you don't even care. You know the hardest people to proclaim the gospel to are those who sit in church. They're harder to talk about Christ to than an atheist. Because they think they're okay. And just talking about the the terrors of, of hell We have to take this seriously because you may be like one who's on a rotting bridge that's walking across a deep, deep chasm, except it's worse for you than that because if you were on this bridge and you fell, it would be a few moments of fear and terror, then you'd hit the ground and that would be it. But to fall into the deep pit of hell is to experience that fear and terror forever and to never died and never have it quit, to just be dying to experience the pain of hitting the ground, the fear of falling to the ground and experiencing that over and over and over again, forever. And I say these things not because I'm judging you or that I dislike you <laughs> or that I, you know, I'm on some power trip up here. But believe me, there are a lot of other things I'd rather talk about right now. I say these things because I care. And there's one that cares for you even much more deeply. He cared so much that he took your place to face God's wrath, if you would but trust him. There is one who cares for you. And that one took upon himself the full wrath of God against sin. And he's the same one that will show you mercy, to pay for your sin if you put your trust in him and he paid for it with his own life. Those same hands which will cast sinners into hell were stretched out and hammered to what we sang about earlier, the mercy tree. I'd like to end this morning where we began on that sermon by Jonathan Edwards. There's a song that um, Edward's sermon inspired written by Steve Camp. It's called In the Hands of an Angry God. I'd like us to close our time together by listening to that song.